They're places only the best and brightest get a chance to go to. And only if you're wicked smart or connected do you get to experience life at an Ivy League school. For most of us who haven't gone, we wonder what it's actually like to go to Princeton, Yale, or Harvard. And those that have gone tend to keep mom on the inner circles there that go on to run the world. But no matter how elite a place may be, or even perhaps because of it, bad things can happen anywhere and any place in this world. So today, we're going to dig down deep and learn about five freaky secrets of the Ivy League. Number five, sex-crazed Ivy League professor. Teachers should never misbehave. After all, they are molding the minds of the future, and so they should lead by example and be upstanding citizens. But regardless of that, people have flaws, and some, like this professor from Harvard, just couldn't control himself. Dr. Dirk Grenadier was a distinguished expert on children's asthma. He spent his life's work on the subject and was very successful and had a seemingly picture-perfect life to go along with that. He and his wife Mabel, whom friends and family lovingly called May, had been married for more than 30 years and together they had three well-adjusted grown children. The Grenadiers lived in Wellesley, a posh suburb of Boston, Massachusetts, where Crime is almost non-existent. Aside from being a highly esteemed faculty member at Harvard University's med school, Dr. Grenadier also served as an allergist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where May worked alongside him as his office nurse. They could often be seen walking their German shepherd in the local parks, and everyone, especially their children, adored the love and dedication these two had for one another on a day-to-day basis. But everything for the family shattered on Halloween of 1999. That's when Dirk frantically made a call to 911 telling authorities that someone had attacked his wife while they were out for a walk. He informed police that he briefly left his wife behind to let her take a break. When he returned to get her, he found her lying on the path, badly beaten, stabbed, and her neck slashed. Then, shortly after emergency responders arrived, May was pronounced dead. During the investigation, detectives found a pair of gloves, a hammer, and a pocket knife stashed near a storm drain in the area. Police found the whole scenario suspect. After all, how does a random murder occur like this anywhere, let alone Wesley Mass? And what a perfect time frame as well, where the doctor leaves behind his wife for a few minutes, only to have her be attacked in such a brutal way. At this point, investigators dug into the doctor's life more and discovered something no one expected. Under the alias of Thomas Young, the well-respected physician had been leading a secret life filled with sexual depravity. Not only did they find huge bills for copious amounts of phone sex, but also that he frequently hired prostitutes. His cravings for such illicit activities apparently had escalated shortly before his wife's murder. And in light of these revelations, Grenadier was then arrested and put on trial by mid-November. During his trial, a flock of sex workers stood on the witness stand to reveal the doctor's sex-crazed tendencies. This wasn't the only thing that convinced jurors of his involvement in the killing, because his blood was also found on the knife and the glove found by the drain. 
Prosecution said he may have killed his spouse for fear that she would expose his secret sex life. In his defense, his camp said a serial killer might be on the loose and that his wife had been a victim. After a grueling five-week trial, the court found him guilty of first-degree murder in June of 2001. He was then sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Number four, the gauntlet. It's been decades since Pennsylvania State University's administration made it clear that every frat or sorority is prohibited to use alcohol or any form of violence in its initiation rituals. But young kids like to break the rules. That's exactly what happened over at Penn State's Beta Theta Phi house back in 2017. Timothy Piazza was only 19 years old when he decided to join BTP. And again, despite it being illegal, the Brotherhood secretly made each of its pledges take part in what they called the gauntlet. Now, originally, the gauntlet was made in order to test the will of a pledge and for them to show their dedication and wanting to be a part of the crew. Typically, this meant enduring physical tests or even punishments, but over time, that was phased out. As a replacement, one of the main aspects of BTP's gauntlet was to have their freshman pledges drink huge amounts of alcohol. On the night of February 2, 2017, Timothy, a varsity football student, was handed a bottle of vodka which he was ordered to finish by himself. Without even flinching and to further prove his worth, he drank it within seconds. After that, he was handed a beer and down that as well. By 11 p.m., the frat brothers found Tim stumbling and staggering. Most likely, they were all having a good laugh at Tim's expense. At some point, Tim headed towards the stairs of the basement, and there he lost his balance and stumbled, tumbling 15 feet headfirst down those stairs. The fall knocked him out cold, and CCTV footage showed that minutes later, he was carried back up by other pledges. He was barely limping and had a huge bruise on his abdomen. Still unresponsive, one of the brothers dumped water on his face, hoping to wake him up. He did eventually wake up, and over the next several hours, Timothy yet again fell down the same basement stairs at least a couple more times. His so-called brothers brought him up to the fraternity's great hall again and dumped him on the couch there. One of them even went in and punched Piazza's abdomen, Another one slapped him hard in the face, and this time, Tim was knocked out cold. The frat then retired for the evening, and everybody went to bed. It wasn't until around 10 a.m. the following day that someone finally decided to call 911. Upon questioning, the brothers feigned ignorance as to what happened to Tim. They never even disclosed that he fell down the stairs a bunch of times. He was then brought to a nearby hospital, and by around midnight on February 4th, Tim was then pronounced dead. In total, about 20 frat brothers were charged and indicted on various accounts of assault and involuntary manslaughter. However, despite their apparent display of cruelty and disregard to the young initiate's life, the worst punishment was only two years in prison, and some only received 30 days of house arrest. Though disappointing, Timothy's family continued to fight for true justice, not only for their son, but for those who might fall victim to such brutalities. 
And indeed, in August of 2021, the New Jersey governor signed the Timothy J. Piazza's law, which required schools to strictly adopt anti-hazing policies. The new law further stated that if hazing acts resulted even in the slightest of bodily harm, those guilty could face at least seven years behind bars. Number 3. Ivy League Killer It was a hard decision for Danielle Thomas to leave her family and friends behind in Florida. But love knows no bounds, and she headed to Queens, New York to be with her boyfriend, 35-year-old Jason Bond. They shared an apartment and a story together. Bond was a graduate of the University of Florida Law School, and he finished his college degree at the prestigious Columbia University in New York City. The Ivy League alum was working as a lawyer while Danielle was a financial analyst. Danielle had no children, so in her off time, she showered her dog Schnoozer with attention, and Jason apparently didn't love that. Court records would later reveal that on many occasions, the man had threatened to kill the black and white pooch for no reason other than he didn't like him. But despite this, Danielle just put up with the abuse, which was also eventually directed at her. In May of 2012, the NYPD received a complaint from Danielle stating that her boyfriend had beaten her up so badly that she was left with two black eyes and walking on crutches. Enraged that she would report this, Jason called her cell phone while she was actually still at the police station. She took that opportunity to put her on speakerphone and everyone at the precinct heard how he threatened to bash in her skull and hunt her down like a dog if she continued to file a report. Bond was then arrested and temporarily detained that day for the threats. Meanwhile, the battered girlfriend was granted an order of protection. She then temporarily sought shelter at an unknown location. However, her worry and concern for Schnoozer pushed her to go back to the apartment later on. And Jason then made good on his threats. Neighbors recalled hearing a huge argument occurring between the couple. When the police were finally notified and entered the Astoria apartment, there they found Danielle's lifeless body placed in an ice-filled bathtub. Beside that tub were two handwritten notes written by the killer. One pledged his love for the victim, while the other said it was an accident. The woman's face, shoulders, and neck were covered completely with bruises, and there were lacerations across her mouth and chest. The autopsy revealed that ultimately, she had died of blunt force trauma to the neck and torso. An eventual investigation uncovered some bone-chilling evidence, including a voicemail recording where Danielle can be heard struggling to breathe as the perpetrator strangled her. Jason, I love you, the victim was heard saying, to which the man replied, I'm gonna kill you. Bonnet then reportedly fled their apartment, carrying with him his girlfriend's phone, which he used to politely tell her family that she was just fine. The suspect was eventually tracked down, though, and captured at a restaurant up in White Plains. A trial soon followed, and he was found guilty of first-degree murder, where the court sentenced him to life in prison without parole. Burdened by guilt and the horror of his deeds, the former lawyer reportedly tried to end his life, but managed to survive. So, for now, he'll spend the rest of his days in jail. 
Number two, Suzanne Jovin's Unsolved Murder. The child of globally renowned German scientists, Suzanne Jovin grew up traveling all throughout Europe, Asia, and America. She was raised in a 14th century Bavarian castle in Germany and was given the best kind of education anyone could ask for. Her immense intelligence enabled her to breeze through her double majors of biology and chemistry at Yale University. She also participated in various extracurricular activities like performing for the Bach Society Orchestra. And physically, she was in top shape as she enjoyed running, skiing, and playing squash. Affable and extremely well-liked by everyone, Suzanne also studied international studies and political science. Her senior thesis was centered on global terrorism, Al-Qaeda, and Osama bin Laden. She certainly had a bright future ahead of her, no doubt, but all that was cut short just before Christmas in 1998. On December 4th of that year, passerby on New Haven's Edge Hill Road, which is a couple miles away from Yale's campus, alerted authorities of a young woman sprawled out on the ground that was bleeding. The victim's throat had been slit, and by the time responders arrived, the woman, later identified to be Susan, was already dead. She was just 22 years old. The autopsy report revealed she received 17 stab wounds to the back of her head and neck, and the attack had been so vicious that the knife's blade was actually found still lodged in her skull. There was no sign of sexual assault, and with no known enemies, fear ran through the entire campus and its immediate community. In light of the tragedy, the New Haven PD pointed out one suspect, and that was Joven's senior thesis advisor, Jim Vandeveld. Despite the lack of hard evidence, authorities went on to interrogate the professor for hours on end. Wanting to clear his name, he cooperated fully with the police, even volunteered to take a lie detector test. Interestingly, though, his request was declined, and it would take more than 15 years before law enforcement officially cleared him of any suspicion. Meanwhile, an email she sent to a friend before her untimely death revealed that the victim was supposed to meet an unnamed person who wanted to borrow some academic materials. Surprisingly, that individual was never tracked down, and whether or not that's what she was doing on that road that day has never been determined. This case eventually went cold, but in 2012, a New Haven resident told police that an unnamed acquaintance and former Yale grad student confessed to him that he was obsessed with Joven's murder and that he expected to be arrested for it. Surprisingly, this person bore a striking resemblance to a sketch made on the possible suspect, which was comprised from eyewitness accounts of a man fleeing the area around the time of the murder. But... A few months after the murder, this individual died of a suspected suicide and police declined to dig any further. And so that's it. It's been a couple of decades since she was killed and the mystery surrounding Suzanne Joven's untimely death simply remains unsolved. Number 1. Two Professors 62-year-old Half Zantop and his wife Suzanne, who was 55, were both professors at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. 
The couple, who originally hailed from Germany, were both brilliant and accomplished in the field of geology, and had met at Stanford University back in the mid-60s, where they were both studying. They were pillars of the community, and dedicated to teaching and making advancements in earth sciences. On the morning of January 27, 2001, two teenagers, James Parker and Robert Tullock, drove from their town in Chelsea, Vermont, to Etna, New Hampshire, headed for the Zantops home. Their goal was to get $10,000, which they would need to start their new lives in Australia. Armed with combat knives, they hid. They knocked on the door under the guise of doing research for an environmental survey. Mr. Zantop, eager to help out, let the boys in. Parker and Tullock began asking questions, and Half eventually made a comment about how the two didn't seem to know what they were talking about. It was this comment that infuriated Robert, and as soon as the man turned his back to him, the teen attacked him with his knife, slashing the elderly man across the chest and face. Suzanne came running from the kitchen where she was preparing a meal for a dinner party that evening. She too was met with the same tragic fate, and under Robert's order, James sliced the woman's throat as his companion went on a slit half's neck. The perpetrators quickly fled the scene, taking with them just a total of $350. Later that night, an expected dinner guest then discovered the gruesome scene and immediately called the police. The evidence included a pair of knife sheets and boot prints, and that led them to the residence of one of the killers. Realizing they'd been caught, both Tullock and Parker fled from their respective homes. And they made it as far as New Jersey, where they sought a ride from a truck driver. But with their names and faces already in the news, the truckers secretly broadcasted their location in order to alert the authorities. After that, the men were arrested. Considering the severity of their crime, the two were indicted and tried as adults. Parker then agreed to testify against Tullock, while the latter attempted to use an insanity defense. Ultimately, though, both consequently received varying life sentences. The Zantop double murder case is a tragedy, a reminder that violence and crime can happen to anyone at any time. So that's going to do it for today, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and tell your friends about us. We have new content coming out every single week, so come back and check us out. And until next time, Stay safe out there.